morning, um, I'm going to look at uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. And this is the instance of the guy that was paralyzed, and his friends took him on his bed and couldn't get near the house of, his, uh, of the crowds. And so you'd be probably familiar with that. I am going to look at it in a slightly different way. I've heard teachings on it and about the, you know, the faithfulness of his friends and their belief and all sorts of things. Um, I'll read the, the verses first and then I'll explain a little what I'm going to do with this. Luke 5, verses 17 to 26. And it happened on one of the days, even as he was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting by who were coming out of every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was there for the curing of them. And behold, men carrying on a cot a man who was paralyzed. And they sought to bring him in and to lay him before Jesus. And not finding a way through which they might bring him through the crowd, going up onto the housetop, they let him down through the tiles with the cot into the mist in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins have been forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who is able to forgive sins except God alone? But knowing their thoughts, answering, Jesus said to them, Why do you reason in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, take your cot, and go to your house. And rising up at once before them, taking up that on which he was lying, he went to his house, glorifying God. And amazement seized all, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We saw wonderful things today. <clears throat> So, I'm now going to, this is the departure, I haven't done this before, but I'm now going to use a fable, because there are, the definition of a fable is a short story that teaches a lesson or conveys a moral, and it's used as a tool to understand both reactions, in our context, reactions from both the saved and the unsaved in this instance. This is the tool I'm going to use, a, a, um, a fable. And it's actually a song that was written by a New Zealand guy called Steve Aparana about this verse. And why I want to point out, I, I won't play the song because there'll be all sorts of copyright issues going on there. Um, but I will use the words, and the reason I want to do it in this way is that in using it as a fable, there are points made that can be magnified using scripture. I just don't want to, to take his words, because he's, he's made this up, okay? He, he, the song, this is not, an, he doesn't claim it was an insight from God of what went on, or he's not this, this is a song that he made about this bloke. But there are some valuable lessons to be learned out of it. And so, 
what he has written is this, and I'm going to I'll read part. I'll read. I'm going to read the whole thing, but not in one hit, because as I go through it, I'll try and bring out the points I want to make to lead us to the conclusions I'd like us to perhaps get to. So this is from the perspective of the guy, the paralysed guy that was lying on the cot, because there are some very interesting and valuable lessons to be learned from looking at this, I believe, from this perspective. So here he goes. I didn't want to be there in the first place. I didn't ask to be taken there. All I know is one minute I'm lying in my palace in my usual place and the next moment I'm on top of someone's house. These four guys hacking away at the roof. They told me the guy inside was some kind of guru. He was going to make me walk. And I thought, oh, yeah. There's a point there. The unsaved, and as, as Kev was praying for them before, down the bottom of the hill, have hard hearts. Oh, yeah. And we all run into that when you're witnessing or speaking of God. Oh, yeah. And so you've got to remember the hardness of heart because once you've been saved, you can tend to be impatient with people. Why can't they see the truth? You've got to remember this hardening of the hearts of the unsaved. Psalm 10 verse 4 illustrates this oh yeah. Psalm 10 verse 4 reads, Through the pride of his face, the wicked will not seek him. There is no God in all his schemes. And that is the unsaved. There is no God in their schemes. And it is pride because the world maintains that it can save itself and save the earth and, and fix everything. That is the pride of the heart. The wicked will not seek him. So we go back. Well, they finally got the hole big enough. So they tied ropes to the corners of the pallet and started, me lower, started to lower me down. Now, to this point, I'm pretty casual about this. That's one of the first things that you learn to be when you find you're different, casual. But as soon as I was in the room, all that changed. Look at the two contrasting reactions that come here, hope and despair. First of all, my whole being felt alive. Even parts of me that had been crippled all my life I could feel. I remember flexing my calf muscle. I knew something was happening that I had no control over. Now there's a, in your presence of Jesus, when you first see the glimpse of the truth, there is that feeling of being alive because every person is born with that awareness of God and the knowledge somewhere buried deep inside that you only truly come to life when you submit and recognize him as Lord. So drawing near to Jesus, you can feel that spark. Psalm 16 verse 11 reads, You will make me know the way of life. In your presence is fullness of joys. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence. So this guy's lowered through the roof into the presence of Jesus. And he feels this joy, this life, this wholeness. And he carries on. 
I remember this overriding feeling of absolute horror and just wanting to get out of there. And Psalm 68 verses 1 and 2 reads, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Also let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, you drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, let the wicked perish in the presence of God. There's a reason for that dread. I'll tell you a personal instance of that. I only just thought of it, actually. I only just remembered it. Before I was, I had sort of with my mouth confessed Jesus as Saviour, but I was not truly saved, I don't believe. And um, as I've mentioned to you before, I was, <laughs> you'll have to judge with I still am, I was a very arrogant young man and I had a, a vastly higher opinion of myself than reality. And um, so when I, you know, uh, Barry Walston led me to God, and I started on this track, I was looking for a church. I didn't know about this church here at this stage, meeting in the town hall. And so uh, I had come along there once, <coughs> you know, strange people. And so I thought I'd go around, I went church touring. Now, the reason I say I don't believe I was saved because I had not surrendered to the Lord. There was some stuff I was holding on to very tightly and willingly not surrendering. And so for entertainment, because I wasn't really enjoying church, all these churches at the stage of the proceedings after each service, they would do an altar call. And so for sport, I would go up and, and I knew there was a a stronghold in me that I hadn't surrendered and I was quite happy with that and I'd say to the pastor or the speaker or whoever it was okay I've got this thing in me that I'm holding on to that you know, blah 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 let's see you fix that then let's see you cast this out and they would you know, that was the stage of pressing on your forehead and yelling at you and all this sorts of things spit flying in all directions as they're getting excited and nothing happened, and I'd smock them. Well, that didn't do much, did it? You know, and after a bit of that, and that perhaps, oh, well, can you stay afterwards, and we'll take you into the back room? Yep, fine. And do that, and, and then they'd, they'd feel stupid. My objective had been achieved, and away I'd go. Next week, I'd go to a different church and repeat the thing again. On three occasions over that period of months or whatever it was, because Marie was coming with me, and she, she wasn't born again. Um, a guy got up to speak, and I turned to her. I just about broke her hand on two occasions. We're getting out of here. There was no way I was letting that man near me. No way. Was he going to pray for me afterwards? I'm gonna, you know, and I knew that Christ was in him. I didn't want a bar of it. Let the who hate him flee before him. Let the wicked perish in the presence of God. That was my greatest fear. only happened on those two or three occasions. The rest of them were hirelings. But the righteous men terrified me. And this is what this guy's, you know, in this, par in this um, 
fable as the skies lowered, the joy and then the absolute terror. He's in the presence of absolute righteousness. I yelled out to my friends to pull me up, but they just had these stupid smiles on their faces and just kept lowering me down. I felt betrayed. Part of me was panicking, but I knew part of me felt relieved. Through all of this, all I could think about was my sin. My sin. I barely knew what the word meant. I probably only heard it twice in my life, and there it was flashing across my mind. My sin. Now we read in Isaiah 59 verses 2 and 3, But your iniquities have come between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, from hearing. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue has muttered perverseness. My sin. By now I was on the floor, people all around, but I could only see him. And I knew I'd never met him before, but I had this feeling that I'd been hurting him for a long time. Like I'd hurt his children or something horrible. There was something I couldn't let him do. I wanted to turn away, but there was nowhere I could look without staring straight into his eyes. And even when I closed mine, I'd still see his. In Jeremiah 16, verse 17, we would read, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is there iniquity hidden from my eyes. There is nowhere we can look away. There is nowhere we can hide from the righteousness of the Lord. All I could feel was fear. I knew that the first word that came from his mouth would mean death for me. Let's sink in. This is what we deserve. And and truth, the first word that comes from Jesus' mouth should destroy us because of his righteousness. He could have said anything, but I knew it would be enough to destroy me. In Luke 12, verse 5, we would read, But I would warn you of whom you shall fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. My go. But why me? I didn't even know this guy. Why should I feel like this? How can he stand there and accuse me of something I didn't know nothing about? Look, I'm a cripple. How much sin can a cripple commit? I'm flat on my back all day. I'm just a beggar. What about those who kill and rape? Why don't you go and stare at them? And there it is. The desire of the flesh to self-justify. And it's in all of us. We sin and the flesh reaction is to justify our sin. Or someone is worse. 
That's one of the things that, you know, if, if we are exposed in something or convicted of something, often, instead of, you know, taking it to God and confessing it and repenting, we'll say, but it's not that bad. What about him over there? Look at that sinner. Well, we're not... It's, we can't perform sleight of hand that's going to trick God into, oh, he is too, and we can sneak out of his sight. You know, it doesn't work like that. We've already seen there's nowhere that our sinfulness can hide from his righteousness, but that is the flesh's reaction, justify ourselves, especially by throwing someone else under the bus. I closed my eyes and I dropped my head forward, waiting for the axe to fall. And there's the realisation. You, know, you go from trying to self-justify to the realisation there is justice and there is a judge that we are accountable to in this process of redemption. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 read... Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor abusers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And as we need, as you're going along this process of the unsaved and witnessing to people, you need to be looking for that moment when they realise there is a righteous standard and they fall short of it. Because that is a turning point in the human heart. That is an understanding that God and his mercy and grace has allowed to happen. He's peeled back this, uh, what do you describe it as? Um, the hard heart of the unsaved, the pride of his face, the wicked will not seek him, there is no God in his schemes. And when you reach this point of realising there is a God and he's going to hold you accountable, then the turn is there. And as Christians, if we're witnessing or befriending people who are unsaved, we need to be aware of these different things because we get so used to the Christian life after being saved for so many years, we tend to forget the very difficult process it can be for those who have no experience with God whatsoever. Oh, why, can you just, why don't you just understand it? Are you stupid? No. It's years and years and years of the world being slowly poisoning their heart and turning it to stone. And we need to have the same grace and mercy with the unsaved that has been extended to us. So the realisation of justice, he's waited for the axe to fall after trying to justify his sin. Then he spoke. He said, take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. He could have taken my life he could have spoken the very words that would have meant my death. But he tells me instead that my sins are forgiven, that I am forgiven. And at that moment, 
the whole meaning of forgiveness pours over me. We've all been in that place. He could have taken our lives, but he forgave us. This is the great salvation of mercy and grace that is extended to every person who's ever been born. This great salvation of mercy and grace that we are fortunate enough to have accepted and to be called children of God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 says, And such were some of you, this unforgiven, horrible, deviant. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, and you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's you. Washed, sanctified, and justified. but by the Spirit of our God. I must have looked ridiculous sitting there, bawling my eyes out, but I don't think anyone saw me, because after he spoke, the room was in an uproar. Everyone was yelling at once. He spoke other words at the time, but not to me. All I knew was that my sins were forgiven. I felt completely free, completely clean. John 8 verse 36 reads, Therefore, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. We are freed totally at the time of our salvation. It is us that puts ourselves back into bondage. There is no bond or chain that is not broken at the time of our salvation. Generational curses are broken. Because if they weren't, that means the cross was not sufficient, didn't have sufficient power to do it. Everything is broken at that point. Any bondage we find ourselves in after our salvation is of our own doing. He didn't overlook anything in our lives. He did not miss dealing with that piece of hidden sin that we had tucked away so deeply. Nothing. Everything was exposed to the light. Everything was sanctified and justified within us. Bondage comes from our own selves now. He looked over at me again and said, Rise up, take your pallet and go home. And I did. I didn't even think twice about it. I just did it. Some people were calling it a miracle, but it didn't seem that way to me. It just felt like nature obeying his voice. It wasn't a request. It was an order, a command. Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6 reads, Trust in Jehovah with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And as I walked home that night, I wasn't thinking, wow, I can walk, but my sins are forgiven. And when the guys who lowered me to the ground caught up with me, all I could tell them 
was that my sins were forgiven. And today when people see me walking and say, look, there's the miracle man. I say, no, it was no miracle. Here's the miracle. My sins are forgiven. Colossians 3 verse 2 reads, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. The miracles are wonderful, but they are the physical outworking of the spiritual. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. If you are never healed, does it impact your salvation? Well, it can if you lose faith and turn your back on God, yes. And so if you focus on the things of earth, it can take your eyes off Jesus and the things above and have devastating impacts. So that's the fable. There's a couple of questions that I think arise out of it. Do we have an understanding of the fear of God? Proverbs 1 verse 7 reads, The fear of Jehovah is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 14.27 reads, The fear of Jehovah is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. So do we have an understanding of the fear of God as it is meant? Or is he just our big loving father in heaven and Jesus our buddy? Because there is an aspect of that in the Christian world. And it's not a tiny wee minority. There is a, you know, there are many, many born-again Christians are taught that basically God is more akin to Father Christmas than a judge. That he's there to give us our heart's desire. And that Jesus, he's like, he's like our older brother and our buddy. Well, there's a grain of truth in those things. There's some truth in those statements. God does wish to give us the desires of our heart, but based upon our heart being changed to that of like Jesus, and so our desires fall into line with what? With what? With Jesus. And so the desires of our heart then line up as the rest of our lives are meant to. We're not desiring the yacht. We're not desiring the 60-inch TV that runs our smart house and the trips and the private jets. We're not desiring all those things. We are desiring to be faithful servants that bring the good news to a dying world. And if we can keep focused on that, then yes, he will give us the desires of our heart. But it is definitely a thing that your eyes are fixed above, not on the world. Otherwise you end up in a prosperity ministry and disappointed. And are we aware, so do we have an understanding of the fear of God? Are we aware 
of our propensity to justify ourselves when we sin, when we fall short, when we judge other people, when we do not live up to the standard which we know is right, do we understand that any self-justification like that is an opening for sin? Because it is. Once we start to justify our wrongness, then we open the door for the enemy to enter and to start to build little blocks of a stronghold there. And I presume that during your Christian lives, you've probably met people who are Christians who are very, very judgmental. It's sin. And it started somewhere along the line with a very small thing. It's probably self-justification or something like that. Do we attempt to be obedient to God, to our greatest ability, and go to him when we fail knowing this? Because we all do it. We're going to sin in some way or the other. And do we then take that to him? To Lord, I've tried to be obedient. I've tried. I failed. There is a redemption. There is a restoration. There is a refreshing and a washing available if we will put our pride aside, put our flesh aside, and go to him with truly humble natures. Do we trust God enough to believe? Romans 8 verse 28 reads, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Do we trust God enough to believe that or do we trust people's perspectives more? Do we trust the perspectives more of our Christian brothers and sisters or the unsaved? Because people who are, who are to appearances sake, their Christian life is going to hell on a handbasket, I think is the expression, or falling apart. And I've heard people being told there must be sin in their lives that they haven't surrendered something to God. Now, that may be true or it may not be true, but for another Christian to say that to you, unless they have been given a word of knowledge, and it will be more specific than that, a word of knowledge, there's a difference between a word of knowledge and a word of opinion. And unfortunately, the greater operating gift in the church today is the word of opinion. If there is sin in your life and someone comes up to you with a word of knowledge, you know it because it pierces. And so to go and say to someone, because you've prayed for them and they haven't been healed, we must have sin in your life, or you haven't got enough faith, which is often done, is, and if we take that on, we are trusting in men's perspective rather than God's. And we can take it on because when you're in that situation, you get on an emotional low. And you can take these things on. And this is why the one speaking them is just dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to do, speak falsehood into another Christian brother's sister's life. If you're asked for your opinion, fine, give your opinion, but make sure you say, this is my opinion and I don't know whether it's God's or not. My opinion. 
Don't say, thus saith the Lord. Mm-hmm. So be careful. And we learned as Christians need to trust that all things do work together irrespective of how it looks through our worldly eyes and through the people on the outside. And do we understand the greatest miracle of all is our salvation and do we treasure it accordingly? Because you could pray for someone unsaved, shared the gospel with them, you pray for an ailment and they're healed. A miracle, bona fide miracle. And they still don't commit themselves to God. They're thrilled for a while. They're leaping around with their yeah, healed, paralyzed legs, clicking their heels and going, Yahoo, God's great in this. And, and three, four years' time, exactly the same place. Not physically, perhaps, because God's gift of that repentance. But they still haven't, they're not saved. And so, that's, miracles are wonderful. Love them, they're just absolutely wonderful. But none match the miracle of salvation. None. And that is why the speaking of the good news, the speaking has to come first before the signs and wonders because that is the order of things that God has made. Salvation is the greatest thing of all, the greatest miracle of all. The rest is just an outflowing from that. Signs and wonders is just an outflowing from the gospel. And this is why you need to be careful about easy salvation because the examples I'll use there, and I, I, I don't mean any... Um, negative as far as man's character is concerned, but the Billy Graham Crusades, they used to be big, I believe, in the 60s or 70s, was it? I don't know, too young probably. Um, those, those things there, and there was, I believe, tens of thousands, if not more, people packed into a stadium, and he would present the gospel and there'd be songs and the altar call, and thousands would raise their hands to be saved. Now, I have no doubt that thousands of people were saved over the course of Billy Graham's career. He was an evangelist, he loved the Lord, and I don't know, I I think he might have unwound a bit in the end, but anyway, irrespective, I I couldn't say for sure. But what about the other 100,000 people over the course of the years that raised their hands to be saved? considering now that they are saved because they were told that they were and then stand before the Lord in judgment and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Because salvation is, all, is an instantaneous thing there at that time. It is an also an ongoing walk, our salvation. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have to guard it as we're told to. If it was there and boom, that's done, why are we told to guard our salvation? We need every day to be aware that we can turn away from that. And the people that are saved with the sort of the mass raise your hand, give your life, give your heart to Jesus, then that can be fine. But there has to be a follow-through. The follow-through falls to you and me. 
because what you're dealing with is an unsaved person that has no concept of what can happen after that. And so they can happily go away thinking, yeah, I'm saved, back to me life now, because I'm saved. And as many people believe that, that they're saved. And they're just living a sinful life still. But because they've given their heart to Jesus, they'll be sweet when they die. As it falls to us, when people are saved, new Christians, to make sure they are mentored, that they are taught, that environments are put in place when they start to realise what it is, what the salvation is, and how it needs to unfold. And so the, the, the big crusades and the push to get numbers of people saved and the altar calls that are just left there, I don't believe are a healthy thing in the Christian world. And we just need to make sure that if we are the ones that speak the word that brings someone to salvation through the Lord, that we follow through with that. Not just go away and pat ourselves on the back and say, I witnessed to someone the other day and they were saved. Can't do it. We need, we take a responsibility when we bring the salvation word, the message of hope and truth to someone and they accept it. We then have a responsibility to make sure that we follow that through. So, that's it. I hope that uh, doing it in this way was of some use, something I've never done before. But um, I found it three years ago I was going to do this, and then for some reason it just didn't happen. But it came up again a few weeks ago. And so that's what I decided to follow through with it. So, Lord, again, I would ask that you take any words, any foolishness, anything that is mine, and you let it find no place to rest in hearts or minds or memories, that only the things that you desire to be remembered and heard will lodge. They are the only things out of all these words I've spoken that will live farther. And I ask you, Lord, that if there's anything of value in there, that you will use it to make us faithful and true servants to have a greater understanding of how wonderful the salvation is and how valuable it is to us, Lord. Mm -hmm. So what it cost you. So we thank you in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm.